Welcome to the Business of Government. I'm Amanda Lang. This is a special podcast series for The Hub. On it, we're aiming to take a closer look at how our governments function in Canada. Things like their effectiveness, but also their failures. We're taking a nonpartisan, non-jaundiced view of how what's arguably the most important service is delivered to Canadians. And our aim is to understand what we could do better, differently, what's going wrong, and maybe even celebrating some things that we're getting right. Some of the subjects that we want to explore include why it sometimes feel like our governments just aren't that good at big projects. Big procurements seem to go wrong time and again, from new jet planes, commissioning ships, to of course the famous IT system that pays federal bureaucrats. It can feel like government bungles things as much as possible and at a much greater rate than the private sector. In this series, we want to ask the question, how is government functioning? Is it working well? Where are the shortfalls? What could be done better? We're also going to look at the size of government. Sometimes it only ever seems to increase in size. Is there an ideal size for governance? And we're harking back to nudge policies. Remember them? Are they still being used? And could our own psychological behaviors be used to better effect to help govern us better? So let's get started. Welcome to episode two, Does Size Matter? In this episode, we're asking the question, is there such a thing as the right size for government? It can be a loaded question because people tend to follow along partisan lines on this, small being the conservative preference, bigger the necessary side effect of liberal policies. But like anything else, you can measure the effectiveness of government and just the same way you would in the private sector, too few employees would have ramifications on a business's profit and growth, too many employees would do the same. Well, our guest today has done a fair amount of research on this subject and is well-versed in the body of knowledge that tries to answer the question, when it comes to governing, does size matter? Livio Di Matteo is an economist in Thunder Bay. He specializes in public policy, health economics, public finances, and economic history. Livio, great to have you with us. Thank you, Amanda. My pleasure. So, Livio, you know, one of the big questions that people talk about when it comes to government is uh, we talk about big government and small government, and that's often kind of a partisan thing, uh, and people drop up lines. But there is such a thing as measuring the effectiveness of the size of a government. What has your research found? Well, I've uh, done research looking at, for example, the role of public sector size and its relationship with economic growth. And so there is a fairly vast literature. I mean, it is possible to empirically measure the size of government, and mm -hmm. government has grown, not just in Canada, but in countries around the world. You know, if you go back about 150 years, you're looking at governments that were fairly minimalist, barely 5 to 10% of GDP, that has grown in the 20th century and uh, peaked roughly depending on the country, sort of in the early 80s, early 90s. And uh, when a lot of public sectors got close to 40 to 50%, I mean, Canada peaked uh, early 90s at almost 52, 53%. Uh, then the period from about the early 80s to uh, essentially 2006, 2007 was an era of uh, literally shrinking governments. Uh, most yeah. government to GDP ratios fell over time. But then there's been this bump since then. The first major bump was, of course, the um, actually 9-11 and increased spending on security 
and around 2006, 2007, you have the bump of the Great Recession and financial crisis when there was a lot of government spending to prevent the economy from sliding into recession. And I guess all things come in threes, I suppose. The third bump has been, of course, the COVID bump. Yeah. Uh, and there's been an increase in spending. So per se, whether the public sector is large or not is an empirical question, but what is the effect on growth? And uh, there's been a literature looking at the relationship between public sector size and economic growth rates, uh, first done by people like Scully, then there's the Scully, Bars, Army, Ron curve. And so they fitted sort of um, a relationship uh, between economic growth rates and the size of the public sector. And they find that the relationship is essentially a hump shape. So there is a range where as you increase the size of the public sector, economic growth goes up, but then there's a sort of peak point. And then beyond that point, increases in the size of the public sector result in lower economic growth rates. So let's, I, want, I do want to drill into that data because that's, of course, the, the heart of this. But I want to step back first and say, when we talk about the size of government, people can kind of slice and dice that different ways. Uh, and that because it could include literally the government's operational footprint, right? What does it cost to run the government every year, the budget of the government? But I think, and you do this in in your the big research that you did that actually arrived at an optimal number. We're also including, I think, direct control. We're including the parts of the economy that the government uh, has reached into. So just to clarify, when we say size of government, what do we mean by that? Basically, expenditures on programs, debt interest, and goods and services. So crown corporations, for example, per se, are not necessarily in that, but they are sort of standalone, even though in a sense they are uh, public agencies. So there's basically what is reported in things like the public accounts, uh, the expenditure numbers, taxation, etc. That is sort of the size of the government. And as I mentioned, uh, it depends on the government. For the federal government, of course, it's program spending and debt service. But the program spending itself, if you look at what government, the federal government spends, for example, uh, two-thirds of it is, is a type of transfer payment. Right. And that, that surprises most people. Most people think that what the federal government is spending money on is, you know, civil servants, uh, which it is, obviously. But... If you look at it in, in more detail, about two-thirds of what the federal government spends is a transfer. It's either a transfer to individuals, whether it's you know old age security or a child benefit or, or something like that. It's transfers to other governments, which are you know for health, education, federal transfer payments. Yeah. Uh, transfers to bondholders, that's basically servicing the debt. And then transfers to firms, subsidies, uh, of which we've seen a resurgence lately. So, I mean, two-thirds of what the federal government spends is essentially the money comes in and they write a check and they and they send it off. And so, I mean, the OECD has done some, some studies and they find that, you know, larger governments tend to spend a lot more on redistribution, for example, than, say, smaller governments. And so in the Canadian case, uh, a lot of those transfers, whether they're to individuals or to the provinces, are a form of redistributive payment. Okay, and I will come back to those transfers because, of course, the single biggest line item is transfers to um, elderly people in Canada, and, and that's important um, as we move forward. But in your so that's a fairly tidy way to look at the size of government. In other words, because some people I've seen, Livio, include 
you know, uh, regulatory reach, um, mm-hmm. and th- things that are just there, uh, it's sort of reach yeah. into the economy. And it just, to me, that feels, although it's not irrelevant, of course, um, it just feels harder to get your arms around and compare it to other countries. Um, you know, obviously it's going to be a messy way to look at it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, governments affect the economy basically three ways through their taxation, through their spending and through their regulatory activity. And, the regulatory activity is fairly important. I, I mean, the, the cost of doing business, transactions costs, hoops that firms may have to jump through, it's a real effect. For someone like me, that's a bit more difficult to measure. I mean, the size of the, the tax load, for example, is an easier thing to measure relative to GDP. Spending and its composition, in a sense, is easier to measure. But all three of them affect uh, the economy. So, Taxation, for example, has a lot of incentive effects. It can affect risk-taking, capital formation, innovation, entrepreneurship. Uh, Spending, well, that's financed through taxation, so it has an effect on the economy through the taxes levied to pay for it. But then what you spend the money on is also fairly important. So if you're spending the money on uh, infrastructure, uh, for example, that that is needed. I mean, there's there's a distinction between something that might be needed you know, and, and something that might not be. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're spending the money on, you know, improving test scores for students, which improves human capital, uh, there's aspects of spending on health that, you know, certainly make a lot of sense. But then what about all the other spending? I mean, if it's being handed out as, you know, subsidies uh, to firms or to individuals that don't have a productive impact, uh, then that is not necessarily growth enhancing. So, right. I, I mean... It's how much you spend is important, but but what you spend it on is also important. And sometimes it's not even so much the amount of spending, but are you getting value for money uh, for for what you're spending? So let's get to the the data. And I think it's important to note that um, you did some work that uh, really looked not just at the big, the federal number, but also broke it down by province. So I think it's important to look at those numbers too, because of course in Canada, that's a big chunk of the government that's running our lives. The number you landed at as sort of the optimal place to maximize growth is 26 percent. So 26 percent of GDP is sort of the government spend. And at that, that's sort of the sweet spot. There is not a government in Canada at the time that you did the research, which is unfortunately pre-pandemic. So we can only extrapolate up. Not one government was at that level. What does that suggest? Well, basically, the optimal size of government in that particular study came out at 26% to maximize per capita income growth or per capita GDP growth. There is a range of estimates. Uh, there is some other work that I did with a, a co-author, uh, Dr. Summerfield, out in Atlantic Canada, and we found that throughout the last century, that number fluctuates roughly from about 24 25% to about 32%. Yep. The public sector in Canada basically, overall, has ranged anywhere over the 20th century and 21st from, you know, 34, 35% to 53%. So in a sense, we've never historically really ever been in the range that that maximizes economic growth. And uh, that is pretty much a fairly robust result. And so the question is, why are we not in a range that maximizes economic growth. What else are we doing? And to be fair, I mean, those numbers are only if you want to maximize economic growth. Governments obviously do other things. 
-hmm. but there is, is a trade-off involved. And sure. so the question is, what is the value of all these other things that we are doing? And, you know, what can you do to bring yourself closer to that optimum to maximize growth? Because, it, I mean, these are relationships that are sort of estimated at a point in time. But over time, if your public sector is too large and growth reducing, I mean, over the, you know, if rather than growing at 3%, you're only growing at 2 that might not seem to a big deal to most people. They say, well, what's 1%? But the power of compound interest is such that carried forward 20, 30, 40 years, you will have a substantially lower uh, per capita income. You'll have a per capita income that's 20, 30% lower, you know, down the road in terms of the level. So, you know, in a sense, by, by not optimizing growth, you're going to have a, a society that's poor and less able to provide the, the things with the tax system or through public expenditure that we seem to think we should be providing. So it's an important trade-off. It is. And of course, the, these kinds of measures can keep people on a straight and narrow. So we like them for that reason alone to give, you know, that there's some kind of benchmark. Governments often choose benchmarks of their own, um, you know, GDP to net debt, whatever it is. They, they, they'll say, look at this number. Let, let's stick with this, the, the 26 percent, even if we go up to the 34 percent or the 32 there's a range that we say, okay, this is this is sort of where we're going to get maximum return. Could you drill down into the data and say what where you would cut? In other words, where where are the least efficient parts of the spending in government? Right. Is it possible to look at the this complex machinery and say this is the stuff that is the maximum return? And if we cut here, getting down to the twenty, you know, if you, you can imagine if you cut the wrong things, you, you're not going to get maximum return. You'll actually cause harm. Who decides, in other words, how to get us down to that number? What's the best way? Well, the actual decision of you know what to cut ultimately is a political decision. I mean, there should be economic input. I mean, anything that, in a sense, uh, is an investment into human or physical capital, uh, I think, is sort of what your core function. And then there's everything else around it. So, but how you get there in the end uh, is a political decision. Uh, and that's, I, I guess, part of the reality of the world we live in. I mean, economists and scientists can offer all kinds of prescriptions, but but in the end, the decision is made by the elected representatives of the public, and uh, they have to decide what the trade-offs are going to be politically, and 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 those are are somewhat more difficult, and it's not something that I usually, you know, opine on in terms of what I think the political choices should be. I mean. Personally, I think health and education are quite important, but even within those categories, you probably could deliver more with less expenditure, depending on what you wish to spend the money on. I mean, the the you know the health system in Canada, for example, by world standards, is a very good one. Uh, if you look at what we spend as a share of GDP, our outcomes are not that much superior compared to a lot of countries that seem to spend relatively less. Uh, the only reason we seem to be happy with what we're doing, for the most part, in terms of our spending on health, is we always compare ourselves to the United States, which spends about, you know, 17, almost 20% of its GDP on health. And yet its outcomes in many respects, uh, things like mortality, uh, uh, longevity, infant mortality, etc., are actually even worse than ours. So, I mean, if you compare ourselves to, you know, Switzerland or Germany, uh, the Netherlands, we spend quite a bit more and we seem to get less. And so the question is, how do we get more value for money, not just in health, but in education, 
Why is it when, you know, the Dutch have a public sector project, they build a bridge, they do it in a few months, it takes us a few years. What are we doing wrong or not as well that we could improve upon? Health is probably a good example. So let's stay with it for a second, because it is, of course, one of the systems that we have collectively agreed uh, we will fund. It's not likely to change in this country. But it would be one place where this debate about uh, public sector spending versus private sector spending is quite uh, live. Uh, we don't know the extent to which we would be better off or systems would work better if we let the private sector in. And it's it can become, again, it's easy for that to be a political question. So I want to keep it firmly in the realm of the economic. Is there a straightforward way to do a calculation and say, these are the places where uh, the public sector is best suited even if the returns are marginally lower, there are other, you know, there are other reasons why the public sector is best suited. And then these are the places where we will open it to the private sector and, and we're likely to see benefits of that. Can we not, is that not a calculation that we could ask you economists to make? Well, I mean, we, we're all going to have our own, our own opinions on that, I suppose. I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that it, it, much of the Canadian health system is publicly financed, but not exactly publicly provided. Right. So about 30% is privately financed, about 70% is public. And even within that public, a lot of it is payments to private contractors. So there actually is a relatively high private sector role in the Canadian healthcare system. Now, if you were to sort of devise something, what should, in a sense, the public sector fund or provide, and what should the private sector do? I mean, I think there should be a, say, a basic or comprehensive healthcare system covering many of the things that the Canada Health Act originally wanted to do, which is essentially hospital and, and physician services. Then beyond that, uh, any type of catastrophic care obviously is probably best done through the public system. Anything that has a more elective component or is less sensitive to immediacy and being done, uh, there may be more of a private role, either in terms of financing or provision. Uh, but again, to a certain extent, we already have it designed that way. But for some reason, the design has not resulted in the the results that we might have expected. We, are, we seem to be spending a lot, mm -hmm. and a lot of the indicators. I mean, you know, if you think, look at things like um, hospital beds per capita, very low. Uh, physicians per capita were near the bottom of the scale in, in the OECD countries, despite spending almost 11% of our GDP on health. So, I mean, what can we do to improve value for money there? And uh, that, that's a tough question. But it might, it suggests that the answer might not be spend less money, but that there are other factors at play to improve the outcomes. There probably are. Yeah. And uh, again, you'd have to it's not just economists that need to weigh in on that. It's probably medical specialists also in terms of asking them where they think uh, a lot of the money should be spent right. or how should it be spent differently. Uh, I mean, in many respects, just like in education, very often the frontline people probably have the best idea of what is going on. In the healthcare system, the physicians and the nurses do have the best idea of what is going on. And in the universities, people are in the classroom uh, you know, similar kind of thing. So I, I'm not saying you should rely 100% on them. I mean, obviously, they should have one point of view, but you also need someone to sort of provide a more overarching perspective. Yeah. But you do have to collect the, the input on where you 
where the people that are involved uh, in delivering the service see the savings can be made. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I want to come back to uh, old people. Uh, they're the most expensive thing we have in Canada. They're the biggest line item for the government. Um, there will be more of us uh, as time goes on. And of course, the entitlements are going to be a bigger share of spending. So I guess my question to you is, do we need to change our thinking on what is an acceptable return for our investment? Because that all of that, uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, tell me economically, but I'm going to assume that the spending we do on an elderly person in Canada has a much lower return than other forms of spending. You know, there's some obviously economic benefit. We pay, well, there will be pass-through effects as it is then spent in the economy, but uh, it, there's not a great leverage effect of it. So I guess I'm wondering whether we're consigning ourselves and we should just accept that we will have lower growth because a bigger share of our spending will go to old people. Well, you, you probably will have lower growth because of an aging labor force. The fact of the matter is, uh, without substantial uh, renewal of the labor force and an increase in labor supply, I mean, much of our economic growth from, say, the early 50s up until just you know a decade ago was driven largely by massive expansion in labor supply. And mm -hmm. that was through immigration, but it was also through increased labor force participation by uh, female workers. Well, that's pretty much done. Their participation rates are pretty much equivalent. So where are the future sources of growth? Well, technological change. In terms of spending more on the elderly, well, it depends where you're spending the money on. I, I mean, believe it or not, most of the biggest increases in health spending have not actually come on the demographic. Like We spend the most on that demographic. But if you look at the growth over the last 10 to 15 years, a lot of the growth has actually been in the 45 to 65 range, which most people don't think necessarily as the elderly. Right. So the question is why, why is that? But a lot of procedures are now being done then. In that time period, people are having hip replacements at much younger ages, for example. So that's one of the cost drivers there. Is there a return to that? Of course there is. There's Well, there's two types of returns. First, there's a quality of life return, obviously the individual that uh, gets the, the, the surgery or the procedure. But given that we have an aging labor force, if you want people to work past, you know, their early 60s, which I, I think uh, is going to have to be a factor in order to addressing labor shortages, then you're also going to have to sort of, in a sense, invest on them. So as lifespan has gone up, uh, basically someone born today can easily expect to live into their early 90s. But that also means that they're going to probably have to be a bit more engaged with the labor market or the labor force as they move into that time span. So much of the health spending on the demographic over age 75, a lot of it is done in the last year of life. Right. And that's just the, the nature when people come down with you know, a terminal illness, 
whether you're 50 or 80, a lot of the spending will be in the last year of your life, but obviously more people come down with terminal illnesses towards the upper end, and so more of that spending is there. But it hasn't been as large as driver as people might think. Now, then there's long-term care. Mm -hmm. That's a separate set of issues, and that spending is going to go up rather dramatically, but in the Canadian system, we have we don't basically have a lot of supports uh, for people to keep uh, elderly parents at home, for example, or to do more at home. So we seem to prefer institutionalizing. That's that's very expensive. Yeah, I agree. And and I was really referring to straight up transfers, old age security, CPP entitlements to the elderly that they are due. Um, you know, they've earned them, but those will become increasingly expensive. We are seeing efforts, this, you know, recent governments, but certainly this government, to increase immigration, which is seen, um, I think, as a two-pronged effort, one, to fill labor market gaps, and two, to attract a younger demographic, frankly. I don't know how successful, I know the labor market gap one has been reasonably successful. I don't know how we are doing on the demographic front. But is that a good way to offset that kind of natural reduction in growth that comes with the fact that you're spending more on a group of people that will be aging out of the labor force? It's basically the only option we have because there's no natural increase. And even people that immigrate to Canada within a generation, their children will have fewer children also. Canada is in a sense fortunate that we're a fairly open economy and open to immigration. And so that is a way of basically enhancing the size of the labor force bringing in people with, you know, the skills that we need, and that will certainly be a growth boost. But um, we probably also need to be investing on the infrastructure to accommodate uh, the immigrants coming in. So, I mean, it's a bit of a mixed bag right now because you're basically adding hundreds of thousands of people. The investment-to-output ratio is not, not growing very much. We're not investing in housing and the other infrastructure, and so this is driving up uh, the cost of living for everyone, immigrants and you know people already here. And so in, in a sense, that, that's, that's a bit of a concern. I mean, uh, immigration is a way for us to deal with many of these issues, but it also has to be managed well. The immigration that's coming in is not as much as you think. It seems like a lot of people, but as a proportion of the population, it was actually higher from about 1900 to 1920. Right. Uh, but at that same time, our investment to GDP ratio was like 35%. And we're nowhere near that. So we are, you know, letting people in. Uh, we need them. But we're not investing in the infrastructure to accommodate them, whether it's housing, uh, education services, health, everything, uh, roads. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's going to be a problem. So if you look at spending on the elderly, the old age security payments are the closest thing to a pure transfer, but we've also boosted transfers on the other end. If you look at, you know, if you think about it, old age security and the child benefit are essentially a form of basic income. Yes. And in Canada, we have adopted a basic income. Uh, no, people don't, you know, are talking about, you know, universal basic income, but it's, it's pretty comprehensive right now. If you're over 65, there's a basic income. That's not CPP. CPP you pay into, yep. technically speaking, and there's a there's a basic income people over 65. And if you're under 65 and have children under 18, there is a basic income for you. And that's a lot of money in transfers that's being spent now on, on, on both of those. And Livio, in pure economic terms, leaving aside the many, many factors that are political and in a democratic process uh, come into play, but in pure economic terms, is that good spending? 
Is that kind of straight up transfer of basic income effective if what we care about is kind of maximizing our collective wealth? It depends what the outcome is. So, for example, the money going to the child benefit, if parents take that money to, you know, invest in their children's education and, and do things with it, in the long term, that is a very good benefit. I mean, one of the best programs in the long term, with probably the highest return on the dollar spent, is not necessarily old age security or even the child benefit. It'd probably be a, a national school lunch program, believe it or not. Yeah. And you would probably spend a lot less on that than some of these other programs, but the fact is everyone would be getting a meal at school and it would help them study better. We don't have that. And the odds of it coming about are pretty slim given it's and provincial education systems and who's going to, you know, put that one together. I mean, that probably would have a higher, for a dollar spent on that in the long term, my opinion is that would have a much higher benefit than some of the other money that was essentially... If you look at what's happened, transfers have really gone up a lot, but they're simply just money going out, and we don't really know how that money is going to be used. We're giving it to individuals and assuming that they're going to do what's best. And very often, individuals do know what's best, mm -hmm. but we don't know. We can't measure it. You see, and that, that's that's the problem. How do we measure this? Right. We have no control group, I guess, to... No, what might no. Have it's, a, it's a massive social experiment. There is a lot of money. Like I said, we have created a basic income. We don't call it that, but that's essentially what it's become. We certainly lifted people out of poverty. There's children yes. out of poverty. Um, yeah. So by measures that, and I guess that gets me to uh, when it comes to how policies get shaped, uh, we, we do often see metrics being offered. Jobs is often one. Um, you know, in a, a recent example, and I don't want to get partisan, it's not really the point, uh, but governments do this. They they spend, they subsidize big corporations, big private corporations in order to so-called attract their business uh, to our country. And so, uh, you know, Volkswagen will build, build a big gigafactory here. Um, it will employ 3,000 people and we will spend over 10 years somewhere potentially around $13 billion dollars. Hard to know, hard to measure, perhaps. You tell me it, the return on that investment. But I guess what I, what I want to ask you is whether we do see things like jobs being held up as a metric. Uh, is that even the right way to think about something like that? Well, th that is the metric that's used. And I mean, economists, you know, have their own body of theory on those types of activities that subsidized firms. I mean, there, there is a case to be made in some circumstances for some type of subsidy or protection to a firm. It's, it's that traditional infant industry argument. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then you have to ask yourself, is Volkswagen an infant industry? And, well, you know, they're a pretty well-established and developed company. I guess you could make the case, oh, well, you know, the batteries for electric cars are an infant industry well, that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, honestly, I, I mean, they are investing money, for example, in quantum computers and quantum physics. That, you know, may have more of an infant industry type argument there. But once the industry develops and is underway, all that assistance has to disappear. Unfortunately, a lot of these industries that are financed this way as infant industries become grandparent industries, and they never, in a sense, really leave the uh, the support. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you'd probably be better off giving people a tax break with $13 billion if you wanted to stimulate economic activity and growth. Uh, in terms of the jobs that are created, if you work out that $13 billion in the number of jobs created, well, there, those are probably very expensive jobs. There's probably a better ways to create that type of uh, activity uh, through the tax system and through incentives or through infrastructure investment as opposed to simply handing a subsidy out. Not saying that you never you should never hand one out. I mean that, but that's a different set of circumstances. In this case, I mean I, I look at the company and I see a very you know well-established firm. It, I'm not really certain. They, but you know, everybody apparently is doing it. But I mean, that's never a reason to do something just because everybody else is doing it either, I suppose. But that's the argument you'll get. One thing that we can certainly agree on uh, is that spending has gone up, and as you said, the uh, the kind of third event in the last uh, 25 years would be the pandemic. Uh, massive growth in spending that has not been ratcheted back. Um, so, although we have seen some of the spending removed, the supports removed. Uh, post the depth of the crisis, where the the size of our government is just ballooned and it stayed there. Um, so whatever reductions we've seen anywhere have just been in that. I think we have to keep it in that context. It's a very it's very much bigger than it was in 2019. I guess the question that I would say is: Do we just is it a one to one line for people who are concerned about that? Can they say that will lead us to lower growth? Because now surely we're up into the who I don't actually know what percentage of GDP, we could do the math on it based on your, maybe you know, uh, but based on your criteria. But I'm going to guess we're up into the 40s, mid 40s again. You're probably close to the mid 40s right now. I mean, we'd gotten down from, like I said, 52% in the early 90s during the era of the federal fiscal crisis. We bottomed out at about 37%. By about 2018, 2019, we're getting close to 40%. Now we're about 45. So the fact of the matter is that a lot of it was deficit financed. Uh, deficit today does mean higher taxes down the road. Yeah. And higher taxes essentially are going to uh, basically affect growth. I mean, you can say, well, there's investments to accompany it, but a lot of it isn't investment. A lot of it does seem to be redistribution at this point. There is a fair amount of money being redistributed. And that's great if your economy is growing in real terms at 4% a year after inflation, but we're not. Our growth rate has leveled off. Uh, it's been a while now, 2%. Uh, that's, by historic standards, low. A lot of countries are in that range now since the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the growth that, you know, we always, we like to spend based on the growth we had roughly during the, the, the great golden age from about 45 to the mid-70s. Right. Okay? That's when economic growth was something like, in real terms, I mean, after inflation, four to six percent a year. That's not the case these days. But we, you know, we still would like to spend as if the economy was going to grow. And we often justify it by saying, if we spend this, the economy will grow. But you know, even the the rebound after the pandemic from all that spending was it was a short term burst. We're just back down to, you know, probably two percent real growth, if that. Well, and let's just agree that the data, your your research, but the research of many others as well, as you say, there's a fairly sizable body of work on the return on investment of government spending. There is an, an argument that we hear that if we spend, it will create growth. Is that simply illogical? If, you know, if we're up into the 40% of GDP, does every incremental dollar not create growth or might some of them create growth? In other words, how you spend matters. 
No, it still does create growth. Remember, it's hump-shaped. It doesn't mean that if you spend beyond the minimum, beyond that maximum point, you're at zero. It's just that the growth rates rise. They peak at about, you know, 3 4%. Then beyond that, you want to, you want a 50% of your GDP in government. Well, you're not going to get a 4% growth rate. You might get 3 or 25 If you make it even larger, the growth rate declines. So it's, uh, you know, you shouldn't treat it as a policy menu. Let's, you know, let's, let's pick a point and we'll, we'll, we'll do that. But the general rule of thumb is there are diminishing returns beyond a certain point to any activity, even government. And is that something you think governments are aware enough about, policymakers are aware enough about? I think they are aware, but it's a long-term issue and most governments live in the short term. Sadly true. Livio, so good to have you for this. Really appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you. Next on the business of government, not everyone agrees that there's such a thing as too big when it comes to government. On the next episode, we're going to take a look at the quality of Canada's civil service. Is it good? Has it gotten worse in the past few decades or is that our imagination? What could be done to keep it strong? That's the next episode of The Business of Government.